Uh, we're going to be reading today from uh, the first letter of Peter, so if you want to find it in your Bible, it will be on the screen as well. So, um, so uh, I, I'm beginning a new series. I'm used to people leaving church, but not my son, so <laughs> that's a surprise. Okay. The view up here is too good. You see what's going on. Um, so, uh, um, so we're, we're beginning a new series today. Um, uh, we're, uh, the series is called The House of God. And um, to, to celebrate, I, I wore my House of God tie. I'm sure all of you have House of God ties, too. Um, but, but the House of God, it's this church word, uh, and, and it means different things in different places. We're going to be looking at what it means over the next couple of weeks. But um, it really changed its meaning about 2,000 years ago. If you look at the Bible, the, the bulk of the Bible, probably uh, 80% of the Bible, is, is the part that happened before Jesus. And it's the part that leads up to Jesus. It's called the Old Testament. And the, the rest of it, the part at the end, is called the New Testament. And if you look through the Old Testament, almost exclusively in the Old Testament, when they talk about the house of God, they're talking about the temple. The temple was this big building. It was almost six stories tall, which in those days... When you're building out of stone, that's pretty impressive. There weren't many six-story buildings. Um, but it was a single building in Jerusalem, and it was a place where people uh, did the work of worshiping God, and that entailed the various ceremonies and offering sacrifices and all kinds of things. The house of God, people understood, when you talked about the house of God, it was that temple thing up on that hill uh, if you went, went to Jerusalem. They understood that. In the New Testament they got a new understanding of what was the house of God. They changed their thinking about the house of God, and they decided, uh, they decided, they taught um, one another and they taught us uh, that the house of God was the people of God, that God didn't live in a building somewhere on a hill somewhere. God lived in the people of God. So the church, the, the collection of the people of God, uh, not just not just this church, um, you know, at this time, but the whole church, um, this church, the ones down the street, the ones uh, across town, the ones in other countries, even the ones down through the centuries, that that collection of believers is the house of God. So that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at different passages of Scripture with that in mind, because I think our tendency is to say when we hear house of God is to say, Okay, a building. Okay, a building like this, or maybe a fancy, you know, stone building in Jerusalem. Well, we tend to think of a building. So we're going to be looking at these passages of Scripture and saying, suppose instead we see the church in light of what they're talking about, the house of God here. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. All I want to do today is just set that up by talking about that idea, the idea that the church is the house of God. And, and, um, I think that where, where that sticks in our, in our minds is we wonder, how come I have to have anything to do with the church at all? I mean, if I like church, fine. Okay, you know, there's nothing wrong with church. But, but what's the big deal about church? Why can't I just worship God on my own? Why can't I just have my own thing? Me and Jesus, uh, we went hiking this weekend. We saw something beautiful. And there was Jesus. And I just said, oh, that's so great. Um, why, why isn't the Christian faith that way? Why do we have church? And there's, there's two answers. One answer is that Jesus said, do it this way. You saw the passage. Jesus said, um, 
I will build my church. Jesus wants a church, so Jesus gets what he wants. Uh, so that's one answer. But we're going to look at a different passage of Scripture that gives us a, a more full answer, not just kind of a do-it-my-way, but a, a, a better understanding of what it is that Jesus has in mind when he talks about church. So we're going to be looking at this passage of Scripture written by Peter. Uh, and Peter, of all people, was probably in the best position to say, hey, me and Jesus. G- Peter spent more time with Jesus than probably anybody else except maybe his mom. Okay, Peter had three years of intensive face-to-face time with Jesus. And so when Peter tells us this is what the church is for, we understand this is coming from somebody who knows the alternative. So when Peter says we should be a church, we should pay attention to Peter. Now, there's a problem with Peter. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a poet. And so as we read this, he's going to go through a, a series of images so fast it'll kind of it will feel like that I didn't make that turn. I was trying to follow him and I went off the cliff. So we're going to take some time and unpack what he's getting at here. Um, I don't think that Peter was incapable of expressing himself, but Peter was a fisherman. And this is a family Bible. And so he couldn't he couldn't express the way himself the way fishermen are used to. So um, so um, so he's going to go through three images here very quickly. He's going to talk about the church as as infancy. And then he's going to talk about the church as a building. And then he's going to talk about the church as a priesthood. So we're going to go through three images just as fast as can be. So let's let's begin. Peter, Peter begins here in chapter one. or We're going to begin looking at verse 22 of chapter one. Um, Peter says, now that you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. All right. Now we have to stop immediately because there's a whole bunch of questions here. We say, what do you mean? I don't remember obedient, uh, uh, becoming obedient to the church. I don't remember uh, purifying my souls and so forth. Uh, we're, we're immediately stopped. So what is Peter getting at here? Peter is talking about something called uh, being born again or the new life. He's addressing this, this uh, letter to Christians. So if you're, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian or I'm not sure I'm a Christian, um, Peter's not really talking to you. I'm glad you're here because you can hear, you can hear kind of the insider view um, and maybe that'll help you decide, I want to be a Christian. Maybe it'll help you decide, no, not, not, not now, not for me. So Peter is talking to Christians. So if you say to yourself, that never happened to me, Peter's okay with that. Peter says this has only happened to some people. But what he's talking about is the idea that you have eventually come to the point in your life where you have decided, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm in. Uh, if we look at the stories about Jesus in the Bible, we see Jesus would be followed around by crowds. They saw the miracles. They saw the teaching. Uh, he taught like nobody else. And there were crowds who, who were attracted to Jesus. But at some point, people went beyond simple attraction. And they said, okay, I'm in. Okay, I don't really get it all. I don't have it all figured out. But, okay, I'm going to trust you. And that's what he's talking about. He's saying, when you have become obedient to the truth, and it's, again, kind of an odd phrase, but if you go back and read the very beginning, he's talking about people in the old days didn't understand what the truth was. Now we do because we have Jesus. So he's saying, when you become obedient to the truth, when you become a follower of that truth, something happens. Specifically what happens is Jesus reconnects you to God. 
Now, I, I, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about the things that Christians believe, and I'm not going to try and reha- rehash those. You can listen to them online if you want. But the idea is that we have been cut off by, by sin. There's this thing called sin that makes it so we don't see God. But God loves us despite our sin, and so God sent Jesus to reconnect us to him. So he's saying, um, you have been reconnected to Jesus. It's just a free gift. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to uh, pay a tithe or, or do anything else. It's a free gift. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is doing it, is that Jesus has enabled you to be reconnected to God. So he says, when you become obedient to truth, you are your souls are purified. That's his way of saying uh, you have been reconnected to God and you have something happen to you. New life begins flowing into you from God. As soon as that, as soon as that connection, you can imagine like a pipe or something, as soon as that connection is established between God and you, new life begins flowing into you. And you still have your biological life, um, but, but it's different from the kind of life you get from God because eventually you're going to die. Okay, you're going to be in a car wreck. You're going to be in the hospital. You're going to get to be 110 years old. You're going to die. Your body's going to wear out. And your biological life will come to an end. But this new life, this new life that you get from God will not end. It is because it is godly life. It's a different kind of life. You get it now, but it lasts forever. So he says, he says, um, continuing then in verse um, 23, he says, you've been born anew not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. So he's saying that that word of God is, is another way of saying this thing we get from, from God, this new life we have flowing into us from God. Now, how do we know it's enduring? Peter refers back to that whole first chunk of the Bible. He has a quote here. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. Grass withers and the flower fades, falls. But the word of God is different. The word of God is not like grass and trees and leaves that fall in the, in, the, in the autumn. He says the word of the Lord endures forever. And he says that word is the good news that was announced to you. The thing that made you believe in Jesus, quit being just kind of attracted to Jesus and actually begin believing in Jesus, that is the word of God, and it lasts forever. That is the part that will live with you forever. But you notice I skipped a part there. Edmund, if you go back, it says, it says, you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. What about that part? Why did I skip that? Because, uh, because I wanted to talk about it now in verse uh, uh, 1. He says, Rid yourself, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. So what's he getting at here? Here's the thing. Remember I said Christianity is, is the low entrance requirements faith. Okay, there's all kinds of religions out there. Pick one you like. Okay, Christianity, I think, is unique because it says... All you've got to do is just say yes. Okay, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to go to a, a pilgrimage. You don't have to go to some temple. You don't have to offer sacrifices. You just have it. It's that easy. Okay? But the problem is, when you get this new life, you're still where you were a minute ago. Right? So does it matter? Does it matter that, that you now have this new life flowing in you? Okay, if you were in prison and you became a believer, you're still going to be in prison. Okay, if you're old and in a hospital and you're going to die in a week, chances are you're still going to die in a week. Okay, the new life 
is not different, is not going to change your circumstances. Uh, if you have a, a lousy relationship, okay, if your marriage is falling apart, the new life may not fix that. If your parents don't understand you, they probably will be even less likely to understand you once you become a Christian. So, so these things don't magically go away. So, what do you do? Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. And then he says this. He says, rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice, all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Now, that should be pretty easy. Okay? Right? Rid yourself of all malice. What is malice? Malice means ill will toward the other person. Okay? It's like when I, when I look at Pat and say, I just don't like Pat. Okay? Uh, uh, he says, rid yourself of that. Okay? He says, he says, rid yourself of guile. What is guile? Guile is deception. Guile is when you look one way, but really are different. Insincerity or hypocrisy, the same idea that, that you have, you're, you're, you're presenting one face to the, to the world or to other people, but inside is something different. He says, rid yourself of that. Just be who you are. And then he says, envy and all slander. What is envy? Envy is wishing that you had what they had, okay? You like their looks, you like their car, you like their wife, whatever it is. Envy, envy, uh, he says, rid yourself of that and rid yourself of slander, where because you don't have it, you say, you say, well, you know, they're bad too. You, you say, well, you know, that person's a bad person. He says, rid yourself of that. This should be easy. The problem is we start out, like he said, as infants. So he says, you know, if you weren't a Christian um, until 10 minutes ago and you become a Christian, you're probably still going to have these problems. Maybe not all of them, maybe not every day, but you're probably going to be envious from time to time. You're probably going to be malicious from time to time. He says, if you're going to be a Christian, don't be that way. He says, don't stay an infant. But what I like is what he says next. He says, he says like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, Wish that you were different. Okay, start by saying, I don't want to be malicious. I don't want to be envious. I don't want to be uh, insincere. He says, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation. You will grow into salvation. Okay, you're not there yet. Christianity has very low entrance requirements. So how do you get there? He says, long for that. Long for that pure spiritual milk that changes you if indeed you've tasted the Lord is good. And now he does this quick change. He suddenly changes the image. He's been talking about infancy and, and growing up and having pure spiritual milk that, that um, nourishes us. But he gets something. He says, I think, I think Peter says, what's the most passive thing I could think of? Babies are helpless. right? They just lay there and they, they, they scream and they sleep and they poop. That's all babies do. right? But he says, no, that's too active. I want an image that's even more passive. So he says, what could possibly be more passive than a baby? He says, a stone. He says, come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals and yet chosen and precious in God's sight. He's referring back to, again, this is an Old Testament thinking about Jesus, that, that uh, God's holy one, the one that, that Jesus would, would eventually become, um, uh, that that person would be rejected, that he would be, a, a, a precious stone, but he would be rejected. And he says, you be the same kind of thing. People won't get it. People won't understand what God is doing with you. So he says, you be the same way. 
says, come to him, him, Jesus, the living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And he says, like that, like Jesus, like a living stone, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to camp out here for just a minute on living stones. What does he mean by that? What 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 is the deal with living stones? I think the first part is what I've already said. It's passive. He's saying, let God do this for you. He says, this is not something you have to do. If you want to rid yourself of maliciousness, if you want to rid yourself of envy and so forth, let God act in you. So he says, let yourselves be built into a living stone. Uh, Notice he doesn't say brick. You know, bricks are cast from a mold, but stones come in all shapes and sizes. So I was walking yesterday. I found these on the road. What do they have in common? I think they're probably all the same kind of stone. I don't know. I'm not a geologist. But but this one has sharp edges, and it's kind of a medium size. This one is more round, but it's it's small. And this one is big, okay, but it's smoother. So what do they have in common? They're stones, and they look different, like I told the children. They're all different. And if you ask one of them, what do you have in common with this one, they'd say nothing. That person is totally unlike me. I don't understand why they go to church. I don't understand why the church doesn't fall in when they walk inside. Because they're such bad Christians. But but he's saying, rid yourself of that. You don't know what God's doing with them. You don't know the way God is building them into, into a temple. He says, you can't see. You're the stone. So what God's going to do is he's going to whack little bits off of you so that he can make you into the kind of stone he wants. And then he's going to fit you together with other people. And you're going to be supported by the foundation of Jesus Christ. So he says, that's what's going on. And you just long for it, like the baby longing for food. He says, don't judge the other stones. Don't, don't have some preconceived notion of what kind of stone God wants. He says, just let God do it in you. And then he gets to the reason. He says, he says, once God has built this temple, this new temple, the temple that is made of people, God is living in it. And then, and then he shifts, he shifts images again. Now he talks about this priesthood. So in verse 5, he says, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house and then shift of image to be a holy priesthood. Suddenly the stones are now the priests who work in the temple. Okay, so again, Peter's really kind of changing these images fast on us. But now he's saying, you're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Peter gives a couple of of, uh, references to the Old Testament. He says, it stands in Scripture. See, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to to shame. So he's talking about Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you won't be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those that do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. He's saying, look, we all know what happened to Jesus. He got he got killed. He, he was crucified and he was dead for three days. And then on the third day he rose again. And now he's in heaven. So he says the builders rejected him. And you may get rejected, too. But remember what happened to Jesus. He is now the head of the corner. He's the most important stone in the whole building. So you could be like that. He says some people won't get it. A stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That's going to happen. Just be prepared for it. 
He says they stumble because they disobey the word. They don't believe the message about Jesus as they were destined to do. But then he says you, he gets back to this idea of priests. He says you are a chosen race. God has picked you, the people of God. God has chosen you and made you a royal priesthood. That means the priests that work for the king. Uh, it doesn't mean that they wear crowns. It means that they're on the king's staff. Um, in the old days, you actually would, if you were a king, you didn't have to go to church. You had somebody else do it for you. So you had people on staff who went to church for you. So um, he says, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. God has put you aside for one purpose, to proclaim the mighty acts of those who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So three images, infant building priesthood. What's the point? I think the point is we spend too much time with the last and even the first and not enough time with the middle image, the image of the building. We have this, we have this, this idea that Christians are born again. You've probably seen bumper stickers that say they're born again. Okay. But they're probably next to a bumper sticker that says, that says Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Peter would reject that idea. Peter would say Christians, it's true. They all start out that way. They're not perfect. They're just forgiven. But Peter would say, uh, I'm, I'm proof of that. We start out as just forgiven, but we get better. So he says, don't stay an infant. Don't stay an infant. Don't be the person you were when you first became a Christian. Long for something better. Long for the kind of person who can truly love from the heart, who's not malicious, who's not envious, who's not a slanderer. He says, long to be a better person than you were the day you became a Christian. And I hope most of us can say, yeah, I, I, I've been a Christian for all my life and I, I'm, I'm a toddler now. Okay? Or maybe I'm a preschooler. Okay? I may not be what I want to be, but I can see I'm not an infant anymore. So Peter says, don't stay an infant. But he also says, be passive. Let God work on you a while. Don't rush out and become a priest offering praise to the one who called you out of darkness. Why? Because God knows that non-Christians aren't stupid. People who aren't Christians, the reason they're not Christians isn't because they're just dumb. Okay, And you can go out and say, yeah, God's done wonderful things in me. I'm a much better person now. And they look at you and say, hmm, I'm not buying it. Okay, He says, let God work on you. If you rush out as a, as a newborn and you say, you know, God's done wonderful things in me. Most people are going to look at you and say, well, you know, I could get the same level of improvement on my own. Thank you very much, because I don't see a lot of improvement in you. So he says, let God work on you. Spend some time being that house, being that church, being that stone that God is shaping to a purpose, that God is, is fitting into the right place. That God is, is nestling up against the right people. That God is supporting in the right foundation. And then, when that work is done, then you can be the priest. So let me just invite you, okay, what do we do with this? Like I said, this is passive. There's very little we have to do with this, okay? Come back next week. Be the church. That's about it, okay? Come back next week. Let God work in you instead of you running out and trying to do something. In fact, if you're thinking, I'm going to run out and tell my coworkers, you know, uh, be a Christian, hold off on that. Let, let God do some work so the, whole, so the coworker says, what's different about you? And then say, 
Okay, here's why. Come to church and see. Imagine if Christians spent more time living in the middle. Not babies, not people who acted like the rest of the world, no different. But at the same time, not priests out there proclaiming things that really don't hold up because people don't believe it. If Christians spent more time letting God shape them as living stones, letting God construct the building that God can live in, imagine how the world would perceive Christians. Peter knew that this is what Christians should do. He was a guy who spent countless hours with Jesus face to face, and he said, be the church. Let God work on you. Let's do that. Thanks be to God. Amen.